how rich is too rich when it comes to CEO salaries in British Columbia. To check this out, yesterday was the first working day of the year for most Canadians heading back to the grind in 2021. Now, if that included you, check out this statistic. Before you even took your lunch break yesterday, the highest paid CEOs in Canada had already made as much in salary as you will make all year long. That's according to a report out from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives yesterday. By 11.17 a.m. yesterday morning, the average top-paid CEO in Canada would have pocketed the same average salary in Canada, $53,482. Is that a problem? Well, let's talk about it right now with my guest, David McDonald on the line. He's a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the author of this report. David, good morning. Thanks for coming on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Also on the line is Vincent Gelasso. He's a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, an economist. Vincent, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. It's a pleasure. Gentlemen, thank you to both of you. David, let me go to you first. Tell me the highlights in your report here. Like when you say that the average top-paid CEO would make more by 11 a.m. than the average worker, can you break that down for us? Like how do you get those statistics? Yeah, so these are the the top 100 paid CEOs of publicly traded companies in the S&P TSX composite. So their average pay... Um, for the 2019 year was 10.8 million, uh, which is 202 times the uh, average pay of the uh, average worker, which is uh, $53,500. And so when you put that a ratio over the number of working days of the year, uh, that's how you get to to January 4th. Um, Now, I have to say that the, uh, you know, the the average wage of the top 100 CEOs actually down a little bit from last year is actually last year was the the historic high in in the last uh, 10 or 12 years. Uh, And this is in large part due to the fact that there weren't any CEOs at the very top of the list making in the 100 or 200 million dollar range in a single year, uh, particularly from bonuses. Uh, We had a lot fewer that this year. And so the average came down a little bit, but it's still over 200 times, uh, which is one of the three years okay. uh, in the last decade where it's over that point. And that, to you, is a problem, right? Well, it's not so much that the, the, the pay is a problem per se. I mean, CEOs will always be paid more than the average worker. They should be. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the issue is, is that is what's the ratio? So, you know, what over time, and over time, how is that ratio changing? So, uh, you know, if the ratio has always been 200 times CEO paid average worker pay, I mean, that might be one thing, but it certainly hasn't been. I mean, if we look back to the 60s and 70s, you know, it was 30 times average worker pay. It's been going up since then. In the mid 90s, it was 100 times average worker pay. And now we're, you know, around 200 times average worker pay. Well, what that means, of course, is that the, you know, that the, that the gains at the top are, are uh, larger than, than the gains for, for the average Canadian. Okay. I think that's what should concern us. Okay, let's go, let me go to Vincent Gelasso. Vincent, what do you think of these findings? I think it misstates a lot of what the economic research says on CEO pay. So the thing that matters is, yes, it's been increasing as a ratio of worker pay. And uh, However, when you use worker compensation, so you use everything that workers are paid, including insurance and other stuff, it has increased much less and it's a much lower level. But what's more important is the fact that there's been very big changes in the economy in the last 25, 30 years. Uh, businesses used to compete only with other Canadian businesses. Now they're competing on a global market, and that means that the competition for the top skills is in high demand. 
and the supply of these yeah. skills is very limited. And that causes a massive increase in, uh, in wages. So that's very explainable by basic economics. The demand for these skills are in, is in great reward. But if you look at the characteristics of CEOs, you'll notice that they're incredibly more skills than in the past. If you look, for example, journals that do economic history that go into the past and not just like rehash like the, the statistics and, and try to understand what's behind it, uh, in the 1960s and 70s, very few CEOs had graduate degrees and they generally had very little managerial skills that were acquired formally. Now, if you look at the composition of CEO skills, you'll notice that many of them have master's degrees and PhDs. The majority of them have such degrees, and they're not in, uh, in uh, easy fields. Okay. They're generally in STEM, so you'll find them to have doctorates in mathematics, finance, uh, biology, chemistry. They're in high-performing fields, so you'll notice that their skills are increasing because that's what the market is asking. Okay. In okay. a cutthroat environment. Well, let me ask, let me get David's response on that. So, David, you know, at the end of the day, is it just what the market will bear? I mean, it's just simple economics, supply and demand. These are, these CEOs have got are highly skilled individuals. Uh, they demand a lot of a high pay and they're going to get it. That's simple, bottom line. I mean, the average worker is also much more skilled, right? I mean, there, there's, yeah. the average worker didn't have university and college degrees in the 60s either. And the average worker in Canada today, particularly young workers, are very highly skilled in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, you know, post-high school, college, university education. They're certainly not exclusive to CEOs. Um, and so I, think when we, I mean, I, so I think that, that um, when we start talking about extreme CEO pay, I mean, I'm not arguing they shouldn't be paid more. I think what's interesting in looking at some of the academic research on CEO pay is that the more you find extreme pay for CEOs, the worse the performance of the company is measured by the stock price. And in part, it's because of how CEOs are paid. Uh, so they're largely not paid by salary. I mean, they get a salary, but that's a small part of their overall package. About 10% of their pay is on salary. Most of it's bonuses, I mean, over 80%, 82% last year was uh, based on bonuses. And these bonuses are often related to the, the share price of the company, and it incentivizes uh, short-term or measures that will try to increase stock prices in the short term, uh, which is often bad for companies in the in the longer term. And uh, what okay. that means is that you, the more you pay your CEO, often the, the worst performance that you get. Okay, David, okay. Or, do you, go ahead, no. Vincent. Go ahead. No, this is there is a there is a big fib that has just been told. If we look at how CEOs are paid and we check how the firms perform, uh, most CEOs are sacked when they perform below expectations. So if you look at systematic studies that don't just take the top 100, but generally all firms on stock markets, you'll find that generally when uh, CEOs are, uh, are fired, they're fired because they poorly perform. Plus, there's something that's known in economics as an endogeneity problem. Sometimes CEOs are sacked and a new CEO enters the, the company and he's hired because he has a particular skill, which is a type of CEO, which is known as the recession CEO. There are CEOs that are highly paid because they have a unique skill, which is to manage a company in the unique setting of a recession. And this is not accounted for in the way it's explained. And the fact of the matter is, is when we look at these, it's very explainable by what the market will bear. But there is one caveat that I'd like to explain. The part that is not explained by performance has to do with the fact that when governments intervene in the economy, they change the incentives for shareholders in terms of who they pick to manage the firm. If it's in a setting where there is very little government intervention, what the shareholders will reward is managerial skills. 
in a setting where there is a lot of political intervention, shareholders will pick someone that has some managerial skills, but also political acumen. And that is irrelevant for managing a business. Okay. It should be irrelevant. Let but me that jump is not in there. The result of the market. That's the result of government policy. Let me jump in there, and I'm glad you brought up the, the question of government intervention here. So, David, just real quickly before we go to a break, and then we'll take some phone calls here too. But are you calling for some sort of government policy intervention here? Like, I, I, I get what you're saying. CEOs are paid a lot of money. Uh, they're paid a lot less than working stiffs. I get that. Are you saying what? That's the, that's something the government should intervene in. Well, what's interesting in this COVID-19 era is that about a third of the top CEOs in 2019 had their companies sign up for the wage subsidy in 2020, 36 of them out of the 100. Uh, And so I think what this, so these are the top CEOs that are getting paid massive bonuses one year and receiving the wage subsidy the next year where the federal government pays a big portion of their payroll. Um, And I think that unless we change the rules, we will absolutely see when all the 2020 pay data comes in um, that we have companies that are on the one side providing massive bonuses to executives and paying out shareholders while on the other side receiving massive support from the federal government doesn't have to be that way it's not the way uh, it is in uh, the netherlands or in spain where they actually bar shareholder payments and payments to executives if a company receives the wage subsidy we could do that in canada uh, but we'd have to do it now because the wage subsidy is going to continue into 2021 we have been tweaking it the wage subsidy that is the SUS program, uh, and I think it's something but, that we should definitely consider for. Okay, do you think? Do you think though that there's other government policies can, 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 that governments could do? Eventually, this pandemic is going to be over. We hope. Like, are you are you calling for like higher taxes on top wage earners or something? I mean, what what is the answer in your mind? Just well, sure. I mean, once, once governments start to look for revenue sources, which I think they will at some point to try to close deficits caused by COVID nineteen. The question is, where should they look for those revenue sources? And one of the most obvious places is for people who've done particularly well uh, over the course of the pandemic, people or companies. Uh, and so I think it's those folks whose door we should knock on first when it comes to raising new money through, uh, through taxes. Okay. okay. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about CEO salaries in Canada, very highly paid CEOs at the top of the salary food chain here, way more than the average workers are making in the country. Is that a problem? My guests are David McDonald, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Vincent Gelasso, the Fraser Institute. So, Vincent, just before the break, David made a pitch for whacking these high wage earners with tax hikes what do you think well the thing is is uh it would only uh, compound the problem i was mentioning and the fact is when you do so first of all ceos are highly mobile and thus they have bargaining powers with firm and one of the adverse consequences and this is well documented in labor economics literature uh Sometimes the back effect of taxing high wage earners who, who can move to any place in the world uh, is that uh, they get the wage increase they want, they get higher wages, and those who suffer are those lower down the ladder who get lower wage growth because they don't have as much bargaining power uh, relative to because they're, they're, they can't move as easily. So there might be ways to backfire. Or if we introduce regulations, for example, this would only further compound the issue of uh, boards of administrators picking CEOs on the basis of political necessities yeah. rather than economic ones. So we make we try to pick one who is amenable to regulators or who is politically connected. And this is there's a big literature in economic, especially in economic history, showing that uh, uh, when CEOs are politically connected, they get huge rewards. And that goes to the heart of the problem. The part of CEO pay that should get like a rise out of us 
is the part that is determined by things that don't create value for consumers. Dictating yeah. okay. political needs to firms is not relevant for consumers. Okay, and let's take so a, as a result, you get yeah. that is unwarranted. Let's take a couple of phone calls here, guys. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Chris on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Chris. Um, uh, Mike, one of your gentlemen there made the comment that CEOs are often rewarded very highly because they motivate the firm and they get lots of money for the firm and that sort of thing. But when they, well, but when they do poorly, they get fired. Yes, that may be the case, but often what happens these CEOs get spectacular payouts when they go. So you can't have it both ways. You're either paid highly, but when you get fired because of poor performance, you should be cut for nothing. You should be paid. There should be no pay okay. for poor performance. Okay, Vincent, actually, what do you say to that? There's a very easy reply to this. It is the fact that it's actually cheaper to fire them with a severance pay, just like we do with average workers when their, their contracts are terminated. They get, uh, I'm from Quebec, we get what is known as the 4%, the 4%. We get a certain part of what we've paid as severance pay. And this is largely to make the contract terminate with a, an incentive to prevent parties to sue the company. So you, I understand that at first glance it appears to be a problem, but it's not. Right. It's actually common. It's been done for average workers, and it's done also for CEOs, and it's actually cheaper because when they're fired, okay. the contract is terminated before its term. Okay, gentlemen, we just have two minutes left. David, let me go back to you. If you were, to, if governments were to do what you want them to do and, and to uh, in, impose taxes, big income taxes on these high wage earners, do you run the risk of highly mobile and talented CEOs leaving Canada or maybe companies deciding not to invest in Canada and then it backfires on everybody? Well, I mean, there's this myth that we go to an auction every year and we buy all of our CEOs. And, you know, if we, if we get a good one, then our company runs well. And if we get a bad one, the company runs poorly. I mean, in Canada last year, I actually took a look at the top CEOs to figure out, well, how many of them have just been sort of parachuted in from someplace else versus how many of them rose through the ranks of the company? 75% of the top CEOs uh, rose through the ranks of the company. They, they weren't parachuted in from someplace else. And so, you know, it's not like they, it's a game of musical chairs where they all get up every three years and move to a different company. Uh, most of them, that you know, their skills and their value is through their knowledge of the company where they've worked. I mean, the average tenure of these top CEOs uh, from these companies is 18 years. Okay. So they've okay. been with these companies for a long time. And I mean, this idea that I mean, it's it's useful to think of them, you know, certainly when we want to we want to rationalize CEO pay to say that, uh, you know, of course, they're going to move in 10 seconds, they're going to move someplace else. But in reality, they're tied to the companies where they work. It has been a, a very challenging outbreak. It's one of the ones that we know have been uh, incredibly lethal. One of the reasons why we have so many um, measures in place in long-term care and why we're focusing our vaccination on long-term care. All right, welcome back to the show. That, of course, is the voice of Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the deadly COVID outbreak at Little Mountain Place. It's a long-term care facility for seniors in Vancouver's Riley Park neighborhood. And the scale of the outbreak there and the lethal nature of it is really incredible. It's just off the chart. 98 of the facility's 114 residents had confirmed cases of COVID-19 along with 69 staff members at the facility. There have been 38 deaths due to complications from the virus at this particular facility, largely 
disclosed in recent media reports the scale of this lethal outbreak of COVID in this particular care home. It used to be in British Columbia uh, that we'd get a daily list of all the long-term care home outbreaks in the province, including the number of cases, the number of deaths. Not getting as much information these days. Lots of people asking for more transparency, more information about COVID outbreaks, especially in long-term care. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Shirley Bond. She is the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the B.C. legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi. Hi, Mike. Uh, Hi. Good to be back with you. Happy Hi, New Mike. Year to you. Thank, thanks very you much for well. coming on. Um, can you tell me your concerns uh, about the situation in long-term care and specifically about this, uh, this particular long-term care uh, facility where there's been so many deaths and, and so many COVID cases? Well, certainly we know that uh, the most significant impact uh, of COVID has been in long-term care, not just in British Columbia, but across the country. And when you look at a situation like Little Mountain, where literally, uh, you know, COVID devastated uh, the, the facility, devastating news for families and, and so incredibly hard on staff who, who care for the residents as if they were family members. So our concern is that, you know, Little Mountain is one example, but we've seen outbreak after outbreak across British Columbia. And it's something we grieve every day as we hear those losses and those numbers, Mike. So you know, we have a number of concerns related to the reporting of data. We think that the more transparent that the government is with that information, the more people understand the seriousness of the issue and can make personal choices and understand why restrictions are necessary. So we're concerned about uh, information. We're also concerned about the use of rapid tests as another tool uh, in order to try to stop transmission uh, or at least uh, at least break that transmission chain when uh, people are entering long-term care homes. So I think there's a number of issues. I think they're legitimate questions. They're hard ones, but but those those questions need to be asked. Yeah, long-term care managers have been asking for rapid testing regimes to be introduced in long-term care facilities. Let me let me play this here for you. This is uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, speaking about support in long-term care, and you'll hear her talk here about rapid testing in care homes. Here's Dr. Henry. In terms of when we would call in the Army, we from the very beginning have had a very aggressive plan to support outbreak response in long-term care homes. And we do it by having uh, teams with public health leadership, with administrative leadership, because that is often a really important um, part of, of organizing to manage an outbreak, making sure that we do testing. And this is one of the places we use our, our rapid tests as soon as a, a, a person in a long-term care home is the rapid tests help us identify right away whether it's influenza or or COVID and we do testing of everybody in the facility both residents and staff depending on on um, movement of staff it may be the whole staff or maybe just people in a certain unit. Okay you heard a talk there off the top there about the potential for Canadian Armed Forces personnel to be deployed into long-term cares which is an option that's on the table in the country and then she also talked about rapid testing there so Shirley Bond when she mentions rapid testing she she talked about using it in response Mm -hmm. to a COVID outbreak it it seems to me that what a lot of long-term care administrators want is something to prevent an outbreak in the first place. So you use it as a preventive measure, but your, your thoughts? 
Well, I think that's exactly the point, Mike, and it's yeah. it's a it's a point we've been making. You know, not just uh, in public uh, as we're having this discussion. We ask those questions in the legislature as well, asking Minister Dix why we can't look at using an additional tool. We know that it's not perfect, and we know that it will take extra resources, but we believe that's manageable, and certainly the seniors advocate, others who advocate on behalf of uh, long-term care workers and homes in the province have been calling for the use uh, of a systematic use of rapid tests, and we think that, you know, every, we should be using every single tool available when we, when we hear the numbers, the devastation that families are facing and that, you know, it's so hard on long-term care workers as well. And, and so we think that use of rapid tests before an outbreak takes place is is an important step we look at ontario for example they in november moved to use rapid tests and in fact i think they called it a game changer in ontario so we're simply saying it's not the only answer but it needs to be all hands on deck and we need to use every single tool available to us to make sure that we're breaking that chain of transmission in long-term care homes Okay, there's been concerns raised about the accuracy of the rapid tests, and maybe you'd mm-hmm. get some false readings from them, and uh, and you could go down the wrong path if you think someone is negative, or maybe you think someone's positive and they're not. Is that a concern, a warranted concern in your mind, for not using the rapid tests in care homes? Well, I'm certainly not a healthcare professional, but I can tell you this, that when there is a tool available that might limit transmission in any case at all that would prevent a death, that would prevent people becoming very ill, I think that we have to weigh and balance uh, from uh, an overall perspective whether or not we should be using that. And we've certainly seen other jurisdictions make the decision to use it. In fact, we're using rapid tests in British Columbia in other circumstances, in the film industry and a variety of other places. Why are we not using it in a systematic way uh, to prevent or break potential transmission in long-term care homes? I think that's a fair question. Yeah. And, and, and when it comes to data, we need to be as transparent as possible. We're asking people, Mike, to make very significant decisions about personal choices. And the more information you give people about the why they need to do that, it helps them in making that decision. So we're calling on the government to be more transparent, to be more systematic in the release of data, and, and to use rapid tests uh, in long-term care homes. Right. Speaking to BC Liberal leader Shirley Bond, you, you mentioned Adrian Dix, the health minister, and questioning mm-hmm. him in the legislature. Let me play this here for you. Here he is talking about managing COVID outbreaks in long-term care in British Columbia and how we're doing compared to the rest of the Canada. Adri- uh, the rest of Canada. Here's Adrian Dix. The challenges of long-term care are something uh, in this pandemic that are, I think, uh, the most painful for everyone involved, the absolute most painful in British Columbia in comparison to the other jurisdictions that have had significant um, pandemic in, in, uh, of COVID-19 in Quebec and Ontario and Alberta and Manitoba, for example, uh, we've done better. But that's, frankly, cold comfort to families in situations like Little Mountain. Okay, he says we're doing better than other provinces. Your thoughts? 
Well, first of all, I, I agree with him about how difficult and painful it has been. I mean, we, we've had an outbreak here in Prince George, for example, where, you know, we've, we've lost uh, residents. And it is devastating, not just to families, but to entire communities. You know, from my perspective, you know, we can look at the numbers and suggest we're doing better. But I think it's incumbent on, uh, upon uh, the government as, as leaders to step up and use every single tool that's available to make sure we're trying to break that chain of transmission. You know, it's not yeah. just us that, that have made these suggestions. You know, we, we've heard from the seniors advocate in British Columbia, highly respected, and in fact, used to run a long-term care home. We, we've heard from advocates on behalf of long-term care homes. Let's try it. You know, we understand that it is not the most effective test, but it is another tool. And, uh, you know, we think that that's a critical part of an entire process of systematic testing. We've seen testing numbers drop over the, over the holidays because people haven't been going in to get tests. So when we give people information, for example, Mike, it gives them the motivation. It helps them make those personal choices about why they need to do it. So let's do a few things. Let's be more transparent with data. Let's make sure we're using rapid testing as part of an entire overall testing uh, process. And thirdly, let's clarify once and for all the essential visitor policy in long-term care homes. We have been hearing heart-wrenching stories about the inconsistency across British Columbia. Who can visit, why you can't visit, what you can bring in when you visit, what you can't bring in. Let's clear up some, some confusion. Let's bring some more clarity to the process. And that's up to the government and Minister well, Dix to take the lead. Well, on that final point of visits to care homes, what do you think would be a, a reasonable set of rules? Well, what, what we want to see is that we are looking at that. Obviously, we want to care about the health and well-being of, of British Columbians and long-term care residents first. There is an essential policy, essential visitor policy, which allows for there to be one person in a family who's designated. What we're concerned about, Mike, is the fact it's not consistent across the province. And so people are confused. They're concerned. Um, so obviously we understand, you know, we can't uh, open the doors wide up. But there are ways that we should be exploring by working closely with long-term care providers. How can we make... Uh, essential visitors, uh, visitation consistent across British Columbia. So those are the kinds of things that we think the government should be sitting down, carefully discussing, and and looking at the best approach for the entire province. Thanks for your time today. You're most welcome. Anytime, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest now is BC Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside. Lots of concerns out there about COVID in BC schools. I'm very grateful for her time. Minister, thank you for coming on. Oh, happy to, Mike. Okay, let's start with the major exposures we've seen in some BC schools, especially Mm -hmm. at Earl Marriott Secondary School in Surrey. Nearly 50 cases of COVID at this one BC high school. Minister, you got a lot of parents and teachers, support workers out there who are worried. What is your message to people uh, this morning who are concerned, especially people at that high school? What do you say to them? Well, listen, I I, I want to say that I understand this is a very uh, anxious time for everyone across our education sector. We've had a a, a two-week break and, of course, coming back into uh, a situation where we we know we're, of course, still in the middle of a pandemic. I I can appreciate the the, the anxiety that that, that people feel. Um, With respect specifically to 
uh, Earl Marriott. I think you know what we know so far about that situation is that uh, is, is that that cluster of cases was contained. Uh, we know the district is on it. They're working. They're they're working on it. Um, and uh, the ministry will support the district uh, and the school to look at the, uh, the 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 contributing factors to that uh, to that circumstance and to adjust the safety plan. Um, uh, you know to to ensure that that that, that doesn't happen again. And I think what's important to understand here is that we do have uh, district safety plans in place across the province. Uh, they're uh, they're a dynamic uh, uh, force in, in that we uh, we're, we're constantly working uh, with uh, with all of our partners uh, at the district level at the school level um, right. to make adjustments where where we need to. Okay, so your message to parents at Earl Marriott's high school in Surrey is send your kids to school. I mean, we had a, I had a dad call the show yesterday. His son is at that school. He's worried. He's keeping his son home. Is your message to him send your kids to school? Even though there's 50 COVID cases, yeah, I mean, my my my, my understanding of the of the of the situation at Earl Marriott and this and, and based on what I uh, what we have heard from the district and I think what we heard from Superintendent Tinney uh, yesterday is that uh, we we they've 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 tracked down the the, the dates. Uh, on, on which those exposures occurred, um, the the school was closed for two weeks over the over the Christmas break. The expectation is that that situation has resolved. We need to get to the get to the contributing factors for sure. But that is a you know that that looks to be a unique circumstance, I and mean, we're not okay. seeing situations uh, on that scale kind of you know occur throughout uh, throughout the system. Okay, that type of event though is the type of event that critics have been warning about and asking the government to do a, a better job in safety in BC schools. So for example, a mandatory mask policy which the teachers union has been campaigning for for months mm-hmm. now. Why not a mandatory mask policy in schools? I mean, we've got mandatory masks everywhere else pretty much in indoor public spaces in British Columbia except schools. To a lot of people it doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean that that's not strictly true, Mike. I mean, what I will say about masks is that it, uh, is that our our safety plans require in the upper levels that students and staff wear masks in areas that are uncontrolled. So, in common areas, in hallways, in uh, cafeterias, uh, you know, when kids are you know leaving and entering school. I mean, any 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 sort of space within the school that is where where the interactions are not controlled a cl- in a classroom. Uh, the, the the safety plans uh, anticipate and are built on the premise that those spaces uh, interactions are controlled. And important to understand right now too that we've sort of changed how we're dealing with schools right now. Schools are not public places in the way they typically they typically would be. I mean, we're controlling who who goes in and and who goes out. Right. So it you know this situation is about you know as Dr. Henry says uh, you know speaks of the the layers of protection that we that we have in place masks and appropriate uh, in areas that that are uncontrolled are an important part of that um of of that feature and i you know i think that uh, again back to earl marriott the, Im- yeah. the important point here is that it looks as though the the safety plan and the protocols there was a breach in those in in those plans and that's really what we need to get to the well, heart of to support the school to to address that Earl Marriott is an overcrowded high school. I've talked to yes, people who've said that there's yeah. 400 more kids in that school than the school was designed to hold. So it's overcrowded. 
why not bring in some sort of plan to have smaller classes like they've done in Vancouver? I mean, you take a look in Vancouver. They've done blended learning where they, they do a mix of in-person and online learning to cap the number of kids in a class at 15. Why not do that in Surrey? Why not do that in the Fraser yeah. area? Well, you know, and, and that is part, that is a part of the, of, of the plan in, in, in Surrey as, as well. Um, and I know that Earl, Earl Marriott is a school that is overcrowded, and we're building a school in the region to to, to reduce the pressure. And of course, that overcrowding and the fact that we, for for many years, we didn't build schools and didn't address overcrowding. Um, that um, I mean, we're we're you know our government is trying to to catch up with that with that now. Um, so I mean, it does mean that in in schools where there are uh, high high pop, high populations, that we need to be additionally careful with the safety plans to ensure that we're following those plans okay. to the letter because that what I have heard from the community, what I heard from the superintendent and from others on the ground is that where safety plans are um, adhered to by everybody in the, in the school community, we have, we have less, uh, less, fewer problems. And where we have, um, where we don't have adherence to those plans, that that's when we get into trouble. Speaking and so of, we're we we uh, yeah sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to BC Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside. Let me just uh, let me just pivot to a, a different topic on schools, mm-hmm. and that's gym classes in schools. And we've been told that the outbreak at the Earl Marriott High School in Surrey appears to have been traced to some gym classes. I had a caller on the show yesterday, a mom, a worried mom, who said their whole family got sick. She had kids in that school. They believe that the kids got sick in gym class. Are you concerned about gym mm-hmm. classes in the BC school system as a potential sort of spreader environment? Well, I'm. I'm just first. Let me say. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm I, I really feel for the for, for the parent who, uh, whose family spent uh, spent spent the holidays um, um, sick. I mean, that that's that's certainly not the situation that we that we want to see. We want to work to minimize those that 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 potential. I, I you know we have spent the the sector spent a lot of time working through issues about gym classes and about physical activities. And you know, as I said, I don't. You know, we don't. We haven't seen these kinds of this kind of a situation. Um, ha- happen, uh, you know, in, in any sort of a broad sense. So we have a particular issue here at Earl Marriott that, that we need to address. But we are going to take this opportunity to work with, um, to work with, uh, uh, with, with educators and with districts around reviewing the safety plans, particularly for physical education, to do a refresh on the key points of the safety plans to ensure that physical education continues right. to be provided, but provided in a safe way. So that work has, start, has started yesterday um, and, and will, will continue with, uh, you, with, with the districts. Do you believe the schools will remain open for the remainder of this year? Well, you know, Mike, that, that, is, um, uh, that, that is a call that the, uh, that, that the provincial health officer will make, and, it, and that, will, that call will be made on, uh, on, the, on the evidence and the science and, and her uh, team's uh, analysis of, of what's happening in our communities. What, that is a very serious decision to make, to, to withdraw children from, um, from school and from all of the supports, not only the learning, but all of the supports that they, that they receive through schools is a very serious decision. And it's one we should not take lightly. And uh, we, um, we, we need to make it based on, uh, based on the evidence and the situation that we're in. Right. Now, having said that, we have uh, a multi-phase plan in education that would allow us, if that were necessary, it would allow us to pivot um, to, uh, to, to, a, to a broader online learning platform. Now, we're still, of course, providing those opportunities for parents who um, are, are not in a position or don't feel like they can send their, their kids to, to in-class learning. 
Um, but, but we know how critically important it is uh, to prevent learning loss, to ensure we're, uh, we're, we're, we're not um, creating social isolation, to make sure that kids continue to have mental health supports, continue to have uh, the support of food programs, all of the other supports that they get through that system. We have to balance all of those, all of those issues. Minister, final question for you. What about doing a better job on sharing information with parents, teachers, support workers, everyone who's affected by COVID in schools? I mean, in the situation with the 50 cases at the Marriott High School in Surrey, that was announced on the final day of the, of the spring break I'm, or the Christmas break. I'm sure there are parents out there who didn't know about the 50 cases of COVID at the school and they sent their kids to school yesterday uh, on back to school. I think the government should be doing a better job here. A lot of people think that that as well. You take a look at other provinces like Alberta, they've got an entire interactive online map showing COVID cases in schools. Can the government, in your opinion, do a better job here in keeping people informed and being more transparent about this issue in schools in B.C.? Yeah, I mean, I'm, cer- certainly we've we've heard. I mean, in my ministry, we, we've heard some of those concerns expressed, and I and I and I know that uh, that the provincial health officers has, has also heard those concerns. And I, uh, in terms of education, I mean, we we work very closely with health authorities to determine to to, to try to determine how best to provide exposure notifications to to school communities, for example. And in the Earl Marriott case, I mean, there was an uh, uh, you know notification before the Christmas break of of a certain number of cases, and then as the, the contact tracing happened and, and all of that work happened over the course of the break, then, of course, that, that, that number increased. So that was a bit of a, um, you know, just a, a bit of a, a timing question there. So, you know, I think that that's something that, that you know, our, our ministry, uh, our, our ministry staff in education have um, been uh, working with, uh, with folks in the provincial health office to look at how, how we can improve and, in fact, standardize uh, the way in which we're providing education in, uh, in, in education. And we'll continue to work on that, continue to work with the provincial health office on that. Minister, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks so much, Mike. Good to speak with you. All right. Thank you. That is Jennifer Whiteside, British Columbia's Minister of Education. All right. Welcome back to the show. Turning our eyes south of the border now is some high stakes politics happening in America today. The focus of the political world in the United States on Georgia today for one key reason, the runoff elections for the Senate. Which party will control the Senate here with new President Joe Biden taking power here? This is absolutely crucial. Two Republican Senate seats up for grabs, two incumbent Republicans trying to hang on, the Democrats trying to steal both those seats. If the Democrats can knock off these two Republicans tonight, the Democrats would seize control of the Senate. They would have control of both houses of Congress in the United States. U.S. President Donald Trump was in Georgia yesterday for a rally. Here's what Trump had to say. If the liberal Democrats take the Senate and the White House, and they're not taking this White House, we're going to fight like hell, I'll tell you right now. You know, I was telling Kelly before, you can lose, and that's acceptable. You lose, you lose, you go, and you go wherever you're going, and you go and say, maybe I'll do it again sometime, or maybe I won't, or I'll get back to life. But when you win in a landslide, and they steal it, and it's rigged, 
that's not acceptable. Okay, as Trump still talking about trying to hang on to the White House, I don't think that's going to happen. He's referring there to Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler trying to hang on to a Senate seat for the Republicans tonight. The other incumbent Republican David Perdue also in a tight battle to keep his seat in the Senate. Oh, what is going to happen here tonight? Let's check in with Reggie Cicchini now, Washington producer and correspondent for Global National in Washington, D.C. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. So this is going to be fascinating tonight. How did we get into this? Why are we having these these runoff elections in Georgia for with the uh, with so much at stake here? Well, I mean, first off, you know, with that clip uh, that President Trump was saying last night, calling it a rigged election, we need to remember that uh, four years ago, he also called it a rigged election, and that was an election that he won. Now he lost by the same margin that Hillary Clinton lost by, so it was a rigged election. President Trump is simply just making noise. The reason that we're in this runoff situation right now in Georgia uh, is because uh, the way that the state works is uh, during an election, you have to get uh, the majority on the plus side of 50% uh, of the vote. None of the candidates were able to do that simply because it was a stacked ballot. Uh, and because of that, they hold it off until uh, several weeks later. And then we have a runoff election, uh, which is ultimately going to be determined tonight or at least sometime in the next few days once all the votes are actually counted. Okay, we got two incumbent Republicans trying to hang on here. David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler up against uh, Democratic challengers John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. Have, has this been a pretty nasty couple of campaigns in Georgia, Reggie? I mean, it's been nasty in the sense that any, uh, you know, high stakes election, especially when you're talking about the U.S. Senate and especially, uh, in the situation now where control of the Senate is up for grabs, it's going to be as nasty as it can get. But what it also was was incredibly costly. This was one of the most expensively run, uh, uh, uh Senate runoff races in U.S. history. And again, it's because if there is a double Democratic victory uh, tonight or in the next couple of days, that is ultimately going to give Joe Biden carte blanche to get his agenda pushed forward because it will be a 50-50 tie on all votes, or at least mostly vo uh, most to all votes, and Kamala Harris will be that tie-breaking vote that will give Democrats the win. So Republicans right. are in a desperate position here to try and maintain control, control that they've held, Mike, for the last 10 years. Okay, the Democrats have not had a lot of success trying to win a Senate seat in the state of Georgia. But of course, we just saw Biden win the presidential election in the state of Georgia. So how are the polls looking here? Pretty tight? So interestingly enough, uh, most major pollsters didn't bother conducting any polls during uh, during this runoff, either you know because of exhaustion during 2020, or again because they're trying to fine tune things after things went uh, you know wrong again with polling. So there really hasn't been all that much to try and dive into. We can look at some of the early voting numbers that were there, uh, and it showed that Democrats uh, were out in a stronger position than they were leading into the November election, which put the GOP kind of on alert to try and get their their vote numbers up uh, on uh, on election day for in person voting. So there is a possibility here the democrats could be making inroads and yes they have had problems in the past trying to get uh, a senator elected but we have to remember in the last several years stacy abrams ran for the gubernatorial candidacy she ultimately lost but made huge gains then we have joe biden running for presidency flipping the state for the first time in 30 years this is a state where where demographics are working in the democrats favor uh, and they're inching closer and closer to victories now each time they run 
Speaking to global correspondent in Washington, D.C., Reggie Cicchini, about the big Senate elections in Georgia tonight. Of course, this all happens with uh, Donald Trump continuing to, to spin the, this story that he was somehow cheated out of the, out of the White House. And we saw this uh, leaked audio tape of Trump emerge uh, this week, Reggie, where he's apparently seems to be like leaning on these public officials in Georgia to try to get them to decertify the, the the results for president and state of Georgia and give him the votes. Let me play a little bit of this for you. Get your take on it. Here's Trump on this audio tape talking to these officials, these Republican officials in Georgia. Have a listen. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Because we won the state. So, so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it, and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers not people that don't want to find answers okay reggie i'm wondering what these two republican senators who are trying to hang on to their senate seats in georgia tonight what they secretly think of of this tape emerging of donald trump trying to kind of browbeat these republican officials in their state in georgia to change the election over over to trump i mean do you think this helps the republican cause in the senate tonight or does it does it hurt them well, I mean, look, uh, Kelly Leffler uh, kind of danced around the the topic of the president's phone call when she was asked about it yesterday, uh, trying to kind of get her own position back into the spotlight, because Republicans understand here that the president's tactics here in attacking not only election integrity, but also Republican uh, uh, state lawmakers in Georgia can backfire on them. And they are worried that the president's tactics here are going to ultimately potentially cost them uh, their, their majority. Uh, in the Senate. So it's kind of a dance right now for someone like Kelly Leffler, for someone like uh, Senator Perdue to uh, not only align themselves with the president, but to also yeah. step away from the president, understanding their political futures here are, are on the line. Yeah, this is some complex politics going on here tonight in Georgia, for sure. When we take a look at there's so much at stake here, Reggie, because, of course, you got Joe Biden being sworn in as president in a, few, in a couple of weeks here. Um, if the Democrats were to take both of these Senate seats tonight, and as you've explained, uh, they would take control of both houses of Congress. Now, you'd think that would be a good thing, obviously, for Biden and the Democrats, and that's what they're hoping for. But in some ways, do you think, I don't know, maybe it places Biden in a, in a tougher spot uh, if it means that there's more pressure on him to deliver on a Democratic agenda. And, and he might be under some pressure from the more progressive or left-wing elements in the Democratic Party to to go to places that could be politically unpopular for him. What do you think? That is going to be uh, a difficult task for uh, for Joe Biden. I mean, look, he has the cards stacked up against him right now. He's potentially either going to uh, have uh, you know the control uh, over the legislative branch in Washington, or he's going to be fighting for moderate de uh, Republicans to join his side in order to get legislation passed, which right. could take place because you know the, the moderate split in the Republican Party right now is you know the, the Trump Republicans and, and the old school conservative Republicans. They may feel more like soft Democrats uh, right now, and it is going 
going to be a tough task uh, if he has full control to get the far progressive side of the Democratic Party on board as well. This is a difficult position for uh, Joe Biden to be in that really people haven't been talking about because there's been so much focus on President Trump's baseless claims and attempts here to flip the election. And I think we're going to have to watch to see what happens, uh, A, with the results of this election, but B, how Joe Biden is able to navigate uh, the political course over the first few months once he's actually in the White House to see what part of his party is actually trying to become, uh, you know, the loudest member and if they're able to get his attention and sway him over to their side. Okay, some fascinating stuff. Last question for you, Reggie. Two very close Senate elections in the state of Georgia today. The polls are close, as you mentioned. When do we expect to get the get the results? And should we know tonight? We likely won't know tonight unless there's some kind of blowout. Uh, in the November election, it took until Friday, so four days to get the results in. Uh, this time around, they started to scan their early ballots in early, so we could get an idea on some of the early numbers within, you know, a few hours after polls start to close. There is a chance here this could last until Wednesday or Thursday. So when you have, you know, Congress counting and certifying the votes for Joe Biden tomorrow, election season should be over. Election season might actually last another few days after that. Another busy day for you, Reggie. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.